Good morning. Uh, first of all, if you could turn over to John 5, that'd be a good place to start. But as we're getting ready for that, Pastor Gary is our uh, senior pastor. He's been out for a couple of weeks recovering from um, a mild stroke. So uh, he's doing well. We expect that he will make a full recovery. But if you're joining us online or you're here this morning saying, where is Pastor Gary? Probably a more substantial update will be in the near future, whether it's via email this week or maybe something next week. We'll see. But uh, we want you to know that he is continuing to recover, uh, and he's doing better each day. So we praise the Lord for that. By way of the announcements, Michael did such a great job. And as we think through the women's studies, those three-week studies, we talked about the next one starting in November. Really, the next one starts Wednesday, this Wednesday. So if you're tracking with that, uh, you're invited to that. And then the one following starts in November. So uh, watch the bulletin for more updates on those things. Thanks. In our uh, study this morning, what we, uh, we're in the middle of, if you can see the kind of the slide behind me, we're in the middle of this series on the seven signs. We see seven signs um, pointed out, defined, and described in the pages of the Gospel of John. And we want to look at them and take from them precisely what it is that, uh, that God intends for us. And we are not suggesting that uh, anyone knows that other than the Holy Spirit, and we trust that in bringing that into and, and looking at the Scriptures, we'll be uh, really encouraged to see Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that came, the servant of God, who is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is fully divine, and fully human because only man should pay the penalty for sin because we are guilty. And only God could pay the penalty of sin because the, the payment for sin is an eternal payment. It's an infinite payment. So a mortal can pay for his sins forever or Jesus, the infinite one, can pay for our sins in an instant. And so what we're doing is seeing how Jesus has revealed that all of the Old Testament in teaching and, and, and anticipating and prophesying that this one would come, that in our hearing, in his interactions in the New Testament, he clearly revealed that he's the one. And that's where we're going to go this morning. I'm going to read John chapter 5, verses 1. I'm going to read a, uh, a lengthy passage of Scripture. It's the Word of God that's going to teach us this morning. And so we're going to read from 1 all the way down to verse 24. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man Answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. 
and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And Father, as we are coming into your presence in prayer, we have worshipped you, we have your word open before us. We are astounded by those words. If we believe Jesus, we have eternal life. If we refuse Jesus, we do not have eternal life. Oh, Father, I pray that you would come and make the identity of your Son, Jesus Christ, evident. In this place, you have already put his glory on display. He has done everything you asked him. And now we're asking the spirit to come convict our hearts of sin and righteousness and judgment that we would see Jesus, that we would honor Jesus, that we would believe, receive him as the only one, the only hope for life. Help us, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. This is our third sign that we're taking a look at. The first two were done in Cana. So that's a little town north 
of Jerusalem. It's in you know, that other region, Galilee, and now we're down in Judea. So we're in Jerusalem on the Sabbath at the temple during a feast, and you can hear what I'm saying, and that's this. Jesus, having done these signs to prove his identity and his, and his work in places outside of Jerusalem, is now coming into the main place. He's now making his public ministry known with a megaphone. What started small is now becoming very, very large indeed. And so here Jesus is coming to the feast. And by the way, he chose the timing of this. He chose the place of this. He did this on purpose so that the most people could see who he truly is. He is revealing himself. So as Jesus public, as Jesus publicly and universally is revealing his identity, check this out. We look first at this miraculous healing. So he's making himself known. We're going to kind of walk through verses 1 through 15 with your finger in the text for a minute, and, and we're just going to describe what is happening here. After this, there's a feast of the Jews. We don't know what feast. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Again, we're saying he did this on purpose to put his, his identity out there for everyone. There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. So in Hebrew, there is, uh, by the way, the word Bethesda is a transliteration from Hebrew to Greek. I'm t only telling you that because in Hebrew, there is a, a tense of words. We have singular and plural, but in Hebrew, they have singular, double, and plural. And so the tense of this word is the double. I tell you that because when they excavate this area in the late 1800s and through the 1900s, for years and years, they found two pools next to one another, which indicate this Bethesda, this double, this concept. And the word Bethesda means this house of outpouring. And so it took them a long time to figure out exactly where this was. But if you could, if you just look at your hand and think, well, the temple is my hand. All right, this is not hard. A little north and a little east is the pool of Bethesda. From here, if you're familiar with the surroundings across the street and over there is baby care. All right, that's a little north and a little east of here. And that gives you a sense of kind of where the pool of Bethesda was. Now, here is an interesting little thing. If you have your finger and you go down, look at verse 3. Keep your finger right there. By the way, the five roofed colonnades were also unearthed. In verse 3, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. Now, most of our Bibles go to the next word, verse 5. But you're on top of things, and you know 5 doesn't come after 3. So what is going on? Well, in the later manuscripts, the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 um, was, was added. And in the earlier manuscripts, they were taken away. So what we think happened was this explanation. And by the way, it says this uh, there. Uh, 
they were waiting, and they were waiting for the moving of the water. They were waiting for an angel that went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. So you can imagine like a spring shooting water up, and the water's kind of, you know, it's moving. And the, the concept was as people went down, in fact, I'll just let you hear what, what was taken there. Whoever went first into the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So that's, that's included, and we think it was included as a, like a footnote, a marginal reading, so people could understand what they were thinking here. And then later, it probably got added. So the best, earliest texts don't have verse 3b and 4 in there. So we should know that. We should know when we're reading the Bible why we have what we have and why sometimes we don't. All of that to say, what's going on with the pool of Bethesda? And here is the short answer. I don't know. I do not know. Why did the waters get kind of moved? Don't know. Did people get healed? Why would they all sit there, all these invalids near the pool for all that time if it didn't happen? Something was happening in these waters. I believe that. I believe that things were happening. I don't know why or how, but Jesus doesn't point out that this was some kind of a problem or something wrong. He just says, what's going on here? And so at the pool of Bethesda, we believe there were people who were healed. Verse 5, one man was there, he's not named, remember he's among a multitude of invalids, he'd been an invalid for 38 years. Two things we want to say about that. Some of us suffer for a very long time. And we do not have answers to why. This man could point to the 38 years and the subsequent healing that came. And later in these verses, he's completely healed and walking around. It's a miracle from God. But there were a multitude of invalids. And he's the only one who was healed. Why? Friends, we do not know why, and it's not listed why. We don't know, but we do know this. What we are getting here is that Jesus has the power to instantaneously heal. Now, a couple more things about this guy. Number one, he seems kind of grumpy. He's a grumpy guy. He's not like, oh, let's choose him because he's really going to, we don't know if he responds in faith. We have no idea. It's not listed here that he has faith. Notice that uh, as we think through this this guy's role, um, he um, kind of doesn't pay attention to what's going on. So he doesn't know. You know, Jesus comes and says, well, is there anyone, you know, do you want to be healed? And he's like, well, I don't have anyone. No one's here. Then later he's questioned, who healed you? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't really keep track of that. Okay. And then on top of that, uh, we see that um, later when he finally does figure out who Jesus is, he goes to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he's like, there's the guy, that's the guy. Ah, Jesus just did these amazing things for him, and he's throwing Jesus under the bus. This guy is not exactly who you or I would say is like the poster child for, for a faithful um, person. Not at all. 
And so, I think we could give them a pass on some of it, right? If you've been in pain for 38 years, seemingly been abandoned by everyone who would have helped you, that you're alone at this pool with, in some respect, no hope of getting in and being healed, you might be a little grumpy too. So he's grumpy. Note, finally, 38 years. Now, we're seeing in John, he is so, he's so, like, subtle with his use of symbolism. But when we get to this passage, it's like, okay, now we've got to at least talk about this, right? It was, first of all, in John chapter 2, if you destroy the temple, I will build it back up. And so what is he doing? He's challenging the religious system of the day. Temple will be gone. Worship will come through me now. In three days, he will raise up his body. Second thing, he goes to Cana. The ceremony, the water pots used for ceremonial cleansing, empty them out. What's he going to do? He is going to announce the coming of the kingdom, and the new wine of the kingdom replaces the water that was used ceremonial to ceremonially to make people clean. Thirdly, John chapter 4. We've got the Samaritan woman. And she is in a great place. Even though she is a quote-unquote half-Jew and, and half-non-Jew and Samaria, but he, she's in Samaria, she's at Jacob's, she's at the well, and she has got water, clean, flowing, daily, life-giving water. And Jesus says, yeah, you live in a good place. You're blessed in the land. You've got the water. But you know what? That cannot satisfy the need of your heart. But I can. The symbolism. And now we get here in John chapter 5 and the 38 years. Maybe that's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 14 where it says that the people were delivered out of the Egyptian captivity and they wandered in the wilderness for 38 years before they were brought into the promised land. We're going to see it time and time and time again. One of them, you're like, yeah, okay, what's he doing here? You put them all together and you're going to see time and time and time again in the book of John. John is telling this story so we understand Jesus has arrived to fulfill the Old Testament temple system. The old temple, the old temple system is going to be gone and from here on out, he is the authority, and all worship for God the Father is going to need to flow through him and him alone. And John wants us not to miss that here in this passage. Guys, we continue on and we see that he miraculously heals this guy. He says in verse 8, get up, uh, take up your bed and walk. There's three imperatives there, three directives. He says, get up, Take up your bed and walk. And so, at, uh, and at once, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Continuing on in verse 9, Now that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10, So the Jews said to the man, It's a miracle. You're walking. After 38 years, we've seen you at the pool of Bethesda. You're whole now. Praise the Lord. That's not what they said. That is not what they said. They said, who told you you could carry your mat on the Sabbath day? See what's going on. 
That's all the authority they had. Now, as we think about the Sabbath, can I just tell you that this guy did not violate the Sabbath day. If you look through the Old Testament and what the Old Testament teaches us about the Sabbath, we should keep it holy. God rested on the seventh day, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. You should not do any of your typical work on the Sabbath day. You should not uh, hoist your stuff and carry your loads, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. You should gather together, gather together to worship the Lord on the Sabbath day. Ezekiel chapter 46. But the Jews, the religious officials came and they said, you know what, We're ne- we need to define what work is and what work's not. And so they came up with, with a list of 39 different categories of work to be avoided on the Sabbath day. It was totally of their desire. It was totally under their control. And they would say, okay, you can't mortal and pestle. No, can't do that. Do not light a fire. So if you're going to have a fire, you better have your candle going from last night because on the Sabbath day, no. In fact, here's another thing. If your house starts on fire, don't put it out on the Sabbath day. Don't do that. That's work. Now, if, if human life is challenged, you could go ahead and save the life. But if it's just stuff, let her burn. Because we don't want you doing any work on the Sabbath day. Listen, these Pharisees just put a yoke. They put a burden on the people with their definition of what you could and couldn't do. And Jesus was saying, I'm not playing your game. I'm not doing that. So he heals on the Sabbath day. And then he instructs this guy to carry his bed, which was not a violation of God's command at all. And the Pharisees can't get over themselves, and they just ask him, now look, who told you you could carry your bed? Who told you that you could? Who, over, who overarchingly went beyond what we say, the law says? And this guy said, well, I don't, I don't know his name. I don't know where he is right now. Don't know. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And you see this miracle, Jesus is coming. He didn't need to get all the glory. He heals him in such a way the guy doesn't even know. And in fact, it says here, when he went looking for him, he left because there was a great crowd there. Um, Verse 13 says, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn. The word withdrawn is he juked him. He dodged out. He purposely saw an opportunity, ducked and covered and left on purpose. So he withdrew. Now Jesus comes and finds him after the hubbub dies down a little bit and says, hey, listen, here's why I did this. Feel this now. See you are well, whole. Sin no more that something worse may not happen to you. And here's what he's saying. Two things. One, it is worse to come to the end of your life and face a judgment from the living God than to endure for 38 years with paralysis. Two, when Jesus does healing 
And not just big, obvious, miraculous healing. When he comes and saves your heart and soul, when you realize who he is, when he steps in, when he provides, when he answers prayer, when he shows himself strong, and he does it all the time. We believe that Jesus does miracles. When he does that, he does it for this purpose, for holiness. In a book I read this week, John Piper said it this way, when Jesus heals, he heals for holiness. And so, friends, the goal of us recognizing the identity of Jesus is not merely some comfort for a little while. It is to know that our sins are forgiven and then to step in and walk in and pursue him with all of our heart and the mind and our soul, to love him with all that we are so that he actually transforms the way we think about life, the way we live, the decisions we make, what we love. Go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. As Jesus publicly and universally reveals his identity, we see his power and his uh, miraculous healing. And secondly, we see the opponents escalating rejection. See that starting in verse 16? Now, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. The word persecuting means pursuing. They were coming after him. They would send a crew of people to watch what he's doing, to ask him, to ask questions, to make sure immediately they try to control the crowds. There was persecution going on as they were following after Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. How dare you break the rabbi's reading of the Old Testament and our 39 categories of the law? Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Now, let's go ahead and jump to the next verse so we can see what he's saying there. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. A ratcheting up of hate for Jesus because of verse 17. They went from persecuting to planning to kill. And we should expect that when we clearly reveal the identity of Jesus Christ when we speak it, when we live it, when we love it, when we, when we worship him for it, that the world around us is either going to respond with faith in Jesus Christ and trusting him, or most people are going to respond with a ratcheting up, a growing rejection, and they are going to say things like, I'll listen, okay, And that's going to go to, don't talk to me about it. And that's going to go to angry outburst. And that's going to go to, I'm never coming to the family thing again. That's how it's going to work, based on what this passage says. The rejection of Jesus continues to grow as his identity becomes accurately seen and perceived in that place. And that's what's going to happen in our lives as well. Well, what's so crazy about verse 17 My father is working until now, and I am working. At face value, it doesn't seem like he has really, like, stirred the pot there. Like, for you and I, we would have that conversation, and you would text it to me, and I'd be like, okay. And I'd move on with my day. But that's not what's happening here. Note that 
when he says, my father is working, first things first, he does not say, our father is working. He did not say, the father is working. He's saying, in a special way, I have relationship with the father that nobody else has. He is making his identity very clear. Now, my father is working, I believe, is, try, is communicating this. My father does not submit to your rules or the Old Testament law about resting. One time the father rested, and that therefore, according to Genesis chapter 2, the Sabbath day is holy. He has not ceased working from that day to this day. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is always on the clock. He is providentially watching over your life and mine. He is sovereignly working every detail of history out in a way that will honor and glorify his name. My father is working and doesn't observe the Sabbath. And I am working and do not observe the Sabbath. I am above the law and I will not submit to what you think I should do based on the law. This is a shocking, amazing statement publicly at the temple announcing the coming of the kingdom and saying the old system is dying out. The old system has taken us this far, but from this point forward, it's going to be all about me, Jesus Christ. He came to fulfill all that the law said about him. Wow! Guys, Jesus is so strong, and he's so good. By the way, he's so good to come and heal that guy, and he's so good to come and cause a stir, and he's so good to invite all of these opponents to come and listen to his claims because they could believe him. And by the way, parentheses, a bunch of them did. Later, as he's planting seeds in the group. By the way, when you're talking to a group of people, you will rarely win the argument. It's going to be when you have relationship with small groups of people and you have opportunities to talk to them offline because they trust you and they see something in you that is real and genuine in the way you live your life for Jesus Christ. The way that I would say it, if you're a 10th grader and you're going to biology class, Know wholeheartedly what you believe about the beginning and the creation. but And you may put forth your statement in the class, but just realize this. If your science teacher is committed to naturalism, you're not going to win the argument that day, and that's okay. Because you might have a group project with one kid. And you may have the opportunity to say, here's why I believe wholeheartedly. This didn't evolve. It was created by an intelligent designer named Jesus. And so we break down large groups into small groups, but Jesus plants seeds in the large group, which we know eventually some actually responded to later. Jesus publicly and universally reveals his identity, but you can see that his opponents are not happy about it, and we should expect that they will resist when we identify Jesus as well. Number three, verses 19 through 29. As Jesus publicly and universally reveals his identity, we see his preeminent authority. 
Jesus is now going to kind of launch out into an irrefutable uh, treatise telling everyone who he is. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly. Now, if you will take your finger and you hold it in 19 and you look down, there's another truly, truly in verse 24. And there's another truly, truly in verse 25. He's really making a statement. When he says truly, truly, he's saying, I want you to get this. I want you to hear this. And you'll note in verse 19 that the next four verses, including verse 19, include the reasons why he's saying what he's saying or the proofs that show what he's saying. So in verse 19, he's saying, um, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So here's what he's saying. You heard me say, I am one with the Father. I am equal with the Father. Verse, 19, verse 18, he's making himself equal with, to God. And Jesus is saying, you got that right. That's what I say. Now, if you ever have somebody who says to you, I don't know what, why do you guys emphasize that Jesus is God? Where do you see that? Take them to John chapter 5, read it over and over and over again. Jesus is absolutely making it plain and obvious that the only reason he is the servant of the Lord, the only reason he can pay for sins, is because he's God. So he says, yeah, you got that right. You heard me right. Now here's the first four, verse 19. We're going to do this rather quickly. Four, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And he's saying, I am completely equal with the Father. Verse 20, four, because the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is himself doing. Note this faithful Love, has said. Note the love that they have for one another, where the Father completely reveals everything that he's going to do to the Son. The Son sees it and participates with him in it. There is complete loyalty and complete knowledge between Father and Son. And by the way, later in the text, we're going to see in a few weeks, that Jesus also will teach us about the Holy Spirit. Right now, he's emphasizing his relationship with God the Father. There is complete disclosure. There is complete loyalty. The Son does all that the Father does, and there's interdependent between Father and Son. They are, the Son never acts independently of the Father. Verse 21. You see the next four. Four, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Son has authority to give life just like the Father. Now, you should feel the weight of verse 21 in this passage because the whole healing, the whole scene is explained in verse 21. So I went to the pool of Bethesda. I healed the guy that I chose to heal. I put his life as an example. After 38 years, he is made whole. And I did that to show you that I have the same authority that God the Father has to speak. Remember what he said? Rise, take up your mat, walk. Jesus did that to show his equality 
with God the Father. And so that he could come to verse 21 and say, you see, the Father raises the dead, I raise the dead. He has all of that authority, and he is going to continue to make his statements and show uh, work uh, signs that prove that the dead hear his voice and are raised, are raised from the dead, and the ultimate sign that he himself could be raised from the dead the third day by the power of the Father. 21, he raises them to life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 22, the last four, the last reason that the Father and Son are obviously one, that Jesus has come in the name of God, equal with God the Father. Number, uh, verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Guys, the Son alone will judge, both now and on the last day, those who are in the kingdom of God, belonging to God in Christ, it says here, will not come into judgment The Father has decided to trust all judgment to the Son. And by the way, Genesis 18.25 says, God is rightly recognized throughout all of history as judge of all the earth. And therefore, Jesus is shown to be preexistent in Genesis 18.25 and prior. He's the judge. And that's why John starts off this whole book saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is pre-existence, and he is the judge over all things. Wow, guys, Jesus is just showing time and time again, underline, underscore, and we get to the, the payoff, if you will, and that's 23 and 24, so that all that honor the Son, just as they honor the Father, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word Do you hear him? Even if you're dead. If you hear his word and believe him who sent me, you will have eternal life. Read the rest of that. He does not come into judgment. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. (laughs) How beautiful. Come to Jesus, believe him. John 3, 17. I did not come to condemn the world. We're all condemned already. I came to pay the sin debt for those who will come and relinquish, surrender their life. Come to me, believe me, receive me, treasure me. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And that's the call this morning. If you came in here radically committed to your traditional ways, so much so that you're more committed to the tradition than to Jesus, that's where the Pharisees were. And Jesus challenges their thinking and says, if you don't turn and believe me, you will die in your sins and be judged. But if you come and receive me here today, there will be no judgment for you. You will have life today and walk in it always. What an invitation. It's an invitation to me too. Verses 25 down through the end, 
we could go on and on. And can I tell you that literally you could do a college semester class on this? But we're going to say it like this as we get to just a couple of points of application here. There are these irrefutable witnesses, and Jesus says if you would just look to them, you would get it. If you would just look to witness number one, John the Baptist came and he, he came and told the whole world that Jesus is now here. That's verses 30 through 35. Study that on your own this week. Verses, uh, verse 36, if you would just see these signs that I'm doing, only the one coming in the name of the Father could do these signs. They prove that Jesus and Jesus alone is the servant from the Lord. And then verse 37 down to the end, the entirety of the Old Testament. If you would just know the scriptures, we spent a lot of time teaching and, and revealing how the Old Testament anticipated the one who would be the servant. And Jesus is here announcing all those scriptures have their amen and yes in me. In fact, if you look at verse 19, excuse me, sorry, if you would look uh, down at verse um, uh, 39 is where I want to go. You search the scriptures. You, you number the letters. You know the order. If we played a game of trivial pursuit, you would win. But you don't know me. He says it like this, this you, you search the scriptures because you think that if you win the game of trivial pursuit, you win. You, you don't win if you know the answer to the trivial questions. Now, there's no trivia in the Old Testament. Nothing is trivial about the Old Testament. I'm making a point that it's not about merely or only academic information. All of those point to a person and you and I either come to him or we will not come to him we either believe him or we reject him we either love him or we try to take him out of the picture through persecution and maybe even trying to kill the memory of him so here are the applications as we final come to the end here number one let Jesus' authority over sickness call you to holiness. The point of believing Jesus is following after him and letting his word transform you. And we are kidding ourselves if we say, I want the miracle from Jesus, but I'm going to live how I want to live. Not going to work, friends. He's either Lord of your life or you have said no to him. That doesn't mean you're perfect. That means you're working on taking your life and surrendering it to him. Number two, honor the father by honoring the son. Verse 23, estimate him as preeminent. Count him first and foremost. Consider everything you own, Paul would say in Philippians, and count it all useless compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing God in Christ Jesus. Esteem him above all. Treasure him the most. Number three, believe Jesus and have life. Verse 24, friends, receiving him is life. 
And if the Spirit's at work in your life right now, and he's calling you from death to life, you know what it looks like to surrender to him, to listen, to believe him. He's drawing you in. And finally, I just want to emphasize this. Jesus has done all of this out of love. Verse 42 says, I can tell that the love of my Father is not in you. And the opposite should be true of you and me. The love of the Father is in those who know the Son. You love. It comes across with joy. It comes across with committed uh, 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 action in the name of Jesus Christ. It comes across with life change. And so there's this love that's within us. It's not about the law. It's not about the rules. It's about this undying and growing affection for God in Christ Jesus. And this is who we want to be in this church, is that we have clearly seen Jesus, and Jesus alone is the servant of the Lord. We are honoring the Son and thereby honoring the Father. And the love of the Father is therefore in us as we live our life together. And that's what we're shooting for. Here we go with the third sign, which is saying the same thing. Honor the Lord. These are written that you may know that you have life and that believing you will honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand and be dismissed. Father, we need help, such help. Thank you for your word, which teaches us. I pray that none of us would hear these words and leave here rejecting Jesus Christ. Father, Jesus comes hard after the one who rejects him to the point where, where this revelation is irrefutable. Father, I pray for those of us who have people we love in our families that have told us to stop talking about Jesus, that have stopped returning texts, that have gotten angry and maybe are no longer coming to family events because they just don't want to hear it anymore. And the reality is some of us are in this place where we happily identify Jesus, but there are moments when we feel muzzled. Lord, help us be very wise, very wise, about how we put Jesus on display. He is the Son of God. He is equal to the Father. He does miracles to transform our lives. Those who believe him finally believe. Dismiss us with your blessing, we pray in Jesus' name.